Paul says, look, if we have clothes on our back, the word here for covering is a broad word in the Greek New Testament. It refers to clothes on your back or shelter over your head. If we have food and covering with that, we should be content. But if you try to find satisfaction with material things, well, it's like drinking salt water. The more you have, the more you need. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is a senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working on a study of the book of Jonah. And today, Pastor Carl continues his final message in his study on the book of Jonah. We have seen Jonah get swallowed by a whale and preach a great revival. Let's join Dr. Brogy as he examines Jonah's response to these great events. So each one of us really need to ask ourselves, as God asked Jonah, what do I get excited about? And what do I get angry about? Now, Jonah's difficult life was a result of his own selfish, warped perspective. I mean, think about it. Where could he have been? He gets all bent out of shape. The plant dies, scorching hot sun of Sirocco, that hot winds that come off the Sahara, they're just burning hot. You can almost feel it like being in a sauna. And where could he have been? He could have been in the king's palace sipping a Syrian iced tea. I mean, think about it. He's a hero. He comes. They know they're going to be destroyed. The God of Israel had a reputation. The nations of the world would often repeat it as you read the Torah. Oh, the God of Israel, he is the one who brought them out by ten mighty plagues. He split the Red Sea in two. And so when someone intersected with someone who represented the God of Israel, whoa, we better pay attention. And this prophet comes, brings them a message of forgiveness, and God sees their repentance. He stays his wrath. He could have been a hero, but you see, his perspective is warped. He was hoping God would wipe the Ninevites off the face of the earth. And we studied that in depth, why he had that perspective in the opening of these 10 messages. Remember, there was three contemporary prophets who had said at some time in the future, God is going to use the Ninevite people to come down and destroy Israel. They will be God's servant as God's disciplinary agent to carry the Israelites away because of their idolatry. And of course, if you know anything about the Ninevites, which you should if you've been here, they were wicked, they were vicious, beyond all thought. Not only does the book of Nahum, that comes 100 years later, where the grandchildren repent of their parents' and grandparents' repentance, but even the archaeological evidence is in the writings and inscriptions where they wrote about how cruelly they treated people. They bragged about it. So he wants them wiped off the earth. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, I would ask you this morning, what makes you angry? I ask myself that question. There is a righteous anger, but then there's some things that we get bent out of shape because our perspective is tilted. You say, I can't believe this guy. I mean, the greatest revival in the history of man. And he's all upset over a plant. How many Christians you know who get more upset over their golf game 
being interrupted than missing coming to church? How many Christians you know who are more upset over the waitress who messes up their order than the condition of her soul? How many Christians do you know who are more concerned with their shrubbery and their flowers that have been messed up by the next door neighbor's dog than they do about the next door neighbor? How many Christians do you know who will vote for a candidate who's squishy on the moral issues, who's in favor of sexual perversion, who's in favor of murdering little babies, but they'll vote for him anyway because that candidate will, will feather their nests and keep their economy in good shape. It's easy to dump on a guy like Jonah without asking, well, what do I really care about? What are my real priorities? Do I really track for the Lord? So as we think about this prophet, there are two problems that really need to be addressed. On the surface, his problem seems that he has no heart for the people of Nineveh, and he only wants to see them wiped off the planet. But Jonah's real problem goes much deeper, and he has no room, in essence, for the God whom he is serving. While the God whom he is serving has plenty of room for the Ninevites. You see, his God is too small, and that's why his heart for lost people is too small. I find it intriguing that the greatest problem that God has to address in the book is not the pagan sailors in chapter 1 or the 600,000 plus Ninevites who repent, but a believer, not just any believer, a prophet of God. Despite their gross evil, God brings the message because God loves the loss. The prophet Ezekiel in the 33rd chapter says, I take, God speaking, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You think God delights in sending people to hell? He does not. Some think it's all fixed. You know, God created some as objects of eternal wrath. That's because they have a warped view of the church. Some of the reformers who came out of Roman Catholicism, they were taught by their Roman Catholic predecessors that the church, namely the Catholic church, had become the chosen people of God and they had replaced Israel. And so they just took that and put a different spin on it and they said it's the body of Christ. So when Calvin came to chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, he didn't know what to do with it. I mean, not if there's still a place for national Israel. Chapter 9 deals with Israel's rejection. I mean, Israel's election. Chapter 10 of Romans deals with Israel's rejection. In chapter 11, with their future restoration, that God is not done with the Jew. Jeremiah 31 says, as long as the sun and the stars and the moon are up in the sky above, that's how long God will be committed to Israel. And so God is going to use the nation just as he used them the first time to bring his son into the world the first time, he'll use them the second time. But look, it's not all prearranged. Yes, God could elect people before the foundations of the world. Why? Because God's omniscient. Foreknowledge, it's used four other places in the New Testament. In each of those places, it speaks of something that someone knew information about beforehand. God in eternity past, he wouldn't be God if he didn't know. He saw how men and women would respond. That doesn't change your free will. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He could not say that. 
if it was all prearranged. But he does. And yet, do we really care about it? I mean, it's a sobering thought. Here is this man of God that gives God more trouble than the pagan sailors and the Ninevites themselves. And so he is running from God. He's pouting under that bush. When God is desirous, it's a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance. The scripture says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, the real problem very often, we look at the wickedness in our world and the depths of sin that just seems to be growing and deepening and broadening. And we say, oh, the problem's all out there. When very often the problem is right in here. The problem is with us. The problem was not with those Ninevites. The problems with God's prophet. And so one of the lessons we can learn from Jonah is that very often the greatest problem that God has is not the sinner, but it's the saint who has been called of God and commissioned of God to take the gospel to the world. We're a lot more like Jonah than maybe we care to admit. Now that's Jonah's warped perspective. Secondly, there on your outline, let's think for just a few minutes about Jonah's heartless perspective. God teaches Jonah something about his heartless perspective. Now, don't miss verses 10 and 11 because these two verses are the key to developing a proper perspective for Jonah. Let's look at verse 10 first, and as we read it, you might want to underline the three second-person pronouns. Then the Lord, then Yahweh said, you, circle that or underline it, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came overnight and perished overnight. Don't miss the significance. Jonah, you feel sorry for the plant, don't you? I mean, Jonah, you had compassion on an ordinary, everyday, temporal plant. Now, we need to ask why it is that Jonah felt sorry why Jonah had compassion on the plant. Well, because his creature comforts had been disruptive, the plant dies, that hot Middle East wind is blowing on him, the sun is beating down on his head, and he is upset. And so God basically reveals three truths to this prophet that he and we need to take into consideration. He basically says, you see that plant, Jonah? First, that plant is a plant that you didn't work for. You didn't have to go out there and dig up the soil and put a plant in the ground. You didn't need to lay down the fertilizer. You didn't need to weed it or till it or water it. You didn't do a thing. Second, you see that plant, Jonah? You need to understand that you didn't cause it to grow. I did it. In fact, I did a jack and the beanstalk on it. It supernaturally grew overnight. And third, you see that plant, Jonah? Not only did it grow up overnight, But I killed it overnight. I caused that plant to die. I created that plant. I sustained that plant. I killed that plant because it's my plant. Now, Jonah needed the perspective that Job had. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God now is helping this pouting prophet to see that his problem is he thinks it's his plant. And it's not his plan. It's God's plan. And if we have a warped perspective on things, then it is going to affect the way we think about those who are lost, 
The psalmist said it so well, it's already up in Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It's all God's, we're just the stewards of it. The world and all those who live in it. And until we're gripped with that perspective that it's all God's and we're just stewards, then things will have a tendency to control us. Let's put this into New Testament theology. Hold your finger, don't lose Jonah. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, all the books in the Bible are all that begin with the letter T, they're all found in the New Testament. And they go from long to short. So the word Thessalonians is longer than the word Timothy, and the word Timothy is longer than the word Titus. So you have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then Titus. And those five books come right after Gary Eats Popcorn. Go everywhere preaching Christ. The great electric power company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So there's nine books you hopefully have fixed in your mind. If you can find one, then you can find any one of those nine books. Now, Peter said many times, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. This I know is a familiar text if you've known Christ for some years, but just knowing a passage doesn't mean that we're necessarily applying it. And so let me briefly uh, set the context. The Apostle Paul is uh, addressing his son in the faith, Timothy, whom he discipled, who himself was a pastor to avoid false teachers in the church. And so if you look in verse five of chapter six, 1 Timothy 6, 5, he describes these men as men of depraved mind. Same word that's used in Romans, adikamos, upside down minds. Men of, depraved, uh, men of a depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And how do they illustrate that? Well, in this instance, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now the issue at hand that Paul addresses arose because the false teachers had snuck into the church. That's what happens. There were once some great churches in this town that today don't even believe the Bible. What happened? Whoever was in leadership didn't heed the warning of the book of Jude. It could happen to Community Bible Church. If we're not careful, someday you will read Carl Brogy is dead if Jesus doesn't come back first. And who will take my place? You see, it's easy for the evil one to break in and for people to miss it. And so that's what was happening amongst the people that he had uh, discipled. Men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth, who supposed that godliness is a means of gain. And so they were exploiting the gospel with their teaching for material gain. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to line their own wallet. Maybe they were charging exorbitant fees. I'll never forget one of the first trips we took to Ukraine in 1997, and there were all these signs outside all the Orthodox churches, baptism, three grievedness, house blessing, five grievedness, and all this list of things. And there was a charge for all, because those were just lost men, those were the ones who actually attacked the, the Baptists that for pretty much represent Bible-believing Christians in that country. So we go into some towns where there might be an Orthodox church, but no born-again believers. We went into some towns where there was nothing. And we'd do these vacation Bible schools, and we'd go back the next year, and after a while, you'd have 30 or 40 people, and, and we'd buy a building and turn it into a church. And what did those religious men do? Well, we interfered with their fees. So they'd come and break the windows of believers' house. They'd break the windows in the church. 
That's what false teachers do sometimes. Now, the specifics of how they raise the money, we're not told. There's a lot of shysters here in America. We call it the prosperity gospel. So how does Paul react to this? Well, he does not react by denying the false teacher's view that godliness is a means of gain. Rather, he agrees with them. He just redefines what God means by gain. And so he says in verse 6 that they are quite right. But godliness actually is a means of great gain with this caveat when accompanied by contentment. That is, there's a gain in the ministry on that both Paul and the false teachers agree, but there's a different definition of gain. The New English Bible that was a paraphrase done by the Brits decades ago renders it this way. They think religion should yield high dividends. And of course, religion does yield high dividends. Their agreement is only verbal, but not on the definition. It's like the cults. You know, those Mormons, we need to pray for them. We need to witness to them. Same with the Jehovah's Witness. The advantage we have this year is that the Jehovah's Witness, we're getting letters to our house. My wife got one last week, inviting her to be a part of a Bible study. They're they're just not out there knocking on doors. They're terrified of COVID still. (laughs) So we may not have to compete with them, but you know, they, they use the same words. So Jesus is the savior of the world. Just a different dictionary to define those words. And that's what these guys are doing. Different definition of gain. And so Paul goes on to add that these spiritual riches can only be enjoyed by those who are content. Godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The spiritual gain is enormous if there's contentment, but without that contentment, there's a lack of perspective, and that's Jonah's problem. So in verses seven and eight, he explains a case for contentment. You don't wanna miss it. See the very first word at the beginning of verse seven, it's that word for. Now the word for can mean different things in the New Testament. In some of the paraphrase translations, we'll put two or three words there, but this is causal. It means because, because here's the reason, We have brought nothing, oidos, oides, into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it, oide. Now, even if you didn't know Greek, and you had a Greek New Testament in front of you, you could say, oh, those two words look very similar. That's why I put them up there. The same Greek word, just used in different cases, is repeated twice, and it means nothing. In fact, the J.B. Phillips translation kind of captures it nicely. Listen to what... That translation says, absolutely nothing did we bring into this world. Absolutely nothing shall we take out of this world. So the word nothing actually appears twice in the original. Now, Paul is not praising poverty or declaring prosperity a a sin. God has nothing against you acquiring things and providing for your family and bettering the state that you may be in. But he is simply describing those people who seek gain for gain's sake in and of itself. Because he wants to underscore that real contentment is not external, it's internal. It's on the inside. So think your way through this as it relates to birth and as it relates to death. And then you will know for sure that this is true in the point that he wants to make. When you come into this world, you come naked without a single thing to your name. No material possessions. 
And when you die, I did a funeral just a few days ago on Thursday, and as Dr. Graham used to say, never are you all behind the hearse. You live with nothing. Now they may dress you up in a beautiful Hickey Freeman suit. Ladies, you may have some of your best jewelry on, but you won't take it with you. People don't carry what they own either into heaven or hell. And again, Paul is echoing the truth of Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So both Paul and Job remind us that material things are just temporal. And so to help us to gain this perspective, look at verse 8. And if we have food in covering, with these we shall be content. If you have food and covering, I spoke to one of our pastors, lead pastors who oversees 150 churches in the Ukraine just a few days ago. He's just so grateful that in his oblast they have food and their homes have not yet been bombed. We're in other oblasts, no food. People are hungry. It's a cold place. You ever lived in Minnesota? You're mimicking the Ukraine. It's not comfortable. And Paul says, look, if we have clothes on our back, the word here for covering is a broad word in the Greek New Testament. It refers to clothes on your back or shelter over your head. If we have food and covering with that, we should be content. But if you try to find satisfaction with material things, well, it's like drinking salt water. The more you have, the more you need. You'll never be content. You'll never be satisfied. And so Paul is giving us some facts about birth and some facts about death. And between these two points of nakedness, when we're born and when we die, we travel on this journey. And God wants us to have a perspective that's right and, and, and that we're not always lusting and coveting and saying, I need this or I need that to be content. So he is reminding the believers to whom Timothy ministered of these false teachers who are teaching the reverse of what God says, just as many false teachers are doing in our day, so that they will have a right perspective. And until you have, until I have a right perspective on things, I can promise you, you will never have a right perspective on people. The passion of your heart will not be to bring people into the kingdom of God. Look, when you have a covetous spirit, when you're always seeking more to be happy, it takes a tremendous toll on you, a lot of energy just to pull it off. And you ultimately can't enjoy what God has even given you. Look at verse nine. But, contrast, but those who want to get rich. The English Standard Version says, those who desire to be rich. The King James puts it beautifully, those that will be rich, that, that will will to be rich. The word bulamai means to will, to desire, to want. He's speaking here of a determination of a willful desire to become rich. Now let's be clear here, he's not speaking about rich people yet or poor people. He doesn't address the rich until you come to verse 17 of this chapter. He's just dealing with people who desire, who want, who will, who are driven to be rich. But those who want to get rich, notice, 
fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For those who are determined to get rich, they fall. Not necessarily in the material realm. It often leads, as we'll see here, to a spiritual fall in the heart. Now, we don't know if Jonah was a rich man or a poor man. But we do know, at least at this little snapshot in his life, he's a covetous man, that the plant was more important to him than the people were. And so I want you to think about this fall. It is described in six phases. Don't miss it. First, they fall into temptation. They do for themselves what they should be praying that God will never do. Lead us, Lord, not into temptation. They create their own temptations. They lead themselves into temptation. They expose themselves into temptation. Why? Because when you have a covetous heart, your heart isn't directed towards the living God. And you're easily brought down. Second, they fall into a snare. It's a word that refers to a trap. Like an animal caught in a trap and you can't escape And so it just has a grip on you and the materialism and the debt and all. It just kind of strangles your life. Third, notice they fall into many foolish and harmful desires. Epithema or lust. The word lust can be used positively like the spirit lust. He desires to, to fill us. Or it can be used negatively. And not just in the sexual realm, but all kinds of realms. Here in the material realm. And so those who fall, fall first into temptation, second into a snare, third into foolish and harmful desires, fourth, notice, into ruin and destruction. You should maybe number these over the top of your text. That might be helpful because this is a passage of Scripture you ought to be able to teach to the new Christian to help them to develop an eternal perspective. Some of you aren't even taking notes. Shame on you. I spent 30 hours preparing this passage to feed you. And you need to jot some of these things down. Now, listen, the irony here is that these covenant people have set their hearts on gain, but the very gain they're seeking after only creates loss. It might be a loss of respect. It might be a loss of integrity. In death, it might be a loss of everything they possess and an eternity hell. And for the believer at the judgment seat of the just, the Bema seat of Christ, a loss of eternal reward Yet he's not done. There's a fifth result, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. This, I suppose, verse 10, is one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. How many times have you heard people say money is the root of all evil? Of course, the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now notice some translations will add the word the. Uh, The love of money is the root, but it's actually not articular. There's no article there. Sometimes a translation does that to smooth it out in its reading, but it's properly reflected in the New King James and in the New American Standard. It is a root. It's a major root, but it's not the only root of evil. And it's not just money. Money in and of itself is amoral. It's just paper and money. But the love of it, I mean, men have lied for it. They worry about it. They cheat for it. They've killed for it. They've destroyed their families over it. They've sold their souls for the love of money. Money is not evil in and of itself. 
but many have put it in priority above God. It is not that having money is wrong, but rather how you deal with it. If you would like to have a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Jonah 010. When you call or visit online, please consider contributing to the ministry of Search the Scriptures. Your generous donation plays a role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl concludes his series on the book of Jonah, Join us then as we search the scriptures.